welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Bibles with you, and I hope you do. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Uh, while you're turning there, let me see a show of hands. How many of you have seen the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Hands up. Okay, good, good. You guys watch way too much TV. I never pick up a TV show that you guys hadn't seen. Uh, in Willy Wonka and the Cho- Chocolate Factory, if you haven't seen it, Willy Wonka owns this mystical, magical chocolate factory, and he makes a decision that he's ready to give this thing away. And who better could own a chocolate factory than a pure-hearted child? And so he has this competition. He puts golden tickets in Willy Wonka chocolate bars and he sends them out. And whoever gets those chocolate bars, whatever kids get those chocolate bars, are invited to come tour the factory. And deep in his mind, he thinks, I'm going to give this to one of these kids, one of these who is worthy. Now, there's all kinds of kids who go to this. One of the main character is Charlie, and he just happens to be poor, affords one chocolate bar, and is able to find the golden ticket. But some of these other kids are not as, um, can we say, pure hearted. Uh, my favorite character in Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, coming up here on the screen, is Veruca. Now, Veruca is uh, the daughter of a very wealthy factory owner there in town. And Veruca is kind of used to getting her way. She told her dad, Dad, I want one of those golden tickets. So he shut down his factory, and he had all of the people in his factory opening chocolate bars nonstop until they found her a golden ticket. Now, as she tours the factory, of course, she wants everything, but she decides to throw a fit when they get to the room with the goose that lays the golden egg. She says, Daddy, I want one. And she says, Honey, and he says, Okay, honey, I'll get it for you. He pulls out his checkbook and he goes, Wonka, how much for a goose that lays golden eggs? Willie Wonka says, Oh, it's not for sale. And all of a sudden, she realizes she's not about to get her way. She's been indulged way too much. She says, Daddy, I want it now. And she begins to throw a little temper tantrum, which is what she does when she doesn't get her way. And what we see in her is that if you indulge this bad, I wanted attitude, that it grows and becomes somewhat ugly. I think Veruca represents you and me. I think that you and me, we have a bad, I want it problem. And and the more we indulge it, the more it grows and and the uglier it gets. And God warns us about that here in commandment number 10. Uh, We've been in this series called Written in Stone. This is our our last week in this series where we're studying the Ten Commandments. And the Tenth Commandment kind of took me off guard as I was studying. Like I really wanted to to add this one to another one and kind of combine them and have a shorter sermon, but uh, or I'm sorry, a, a longer sermon over two of them instead of having a short one over just this last one. But as I studied, I realized that that God really has some things to say to us about our I want it problem. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in chapter 20. This is verse 17, commandment number 10. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So there's the commandment. We, we know what not to do. We know not to covet, but do we, do we know what the word covet means? Oh, we know it's a bad thing, but do we, do we really know what covet means and what we are not supposed to be doing? Well, if you go back to the original Hebrew here, the Hebrew word here is kamad. Kamad means to covet, or as it's translated here. But most of the time in the scripture, it's translated desire. 
So, so you could have just as easily translated this commandment from God. Do not desire, thou shalt not desire what your neighbor has. Don't desire his house or his wife or his servants or his, his livestock. Don't desire those. Other times it's translated pleasant as in things that are pleasant to look at or pleasant to experience, things that we would want to experience because they're pleasant. And what this tells me is that God cares about and he puts restrictions on what we desire. Now, if you go looking for this word in Scripture, this is the first time you're going to see chamad used as the word covet. It's the first time that it's translated that way. So this is the first use of covet in the Old Testament. But, but it's not the first use of the Hebrew word chamad. It's not the first use of desire. In Genesis 2, 9, the first time that this word is used, that God puts this in his word, it says this, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant. There's hamad. It could have easily been translated uh, that is desirable or to be coveted to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, now, what I find interesting about this as I started studying this word is when we look at the word covet, it always has a negative connotation for us. We, we know that it's a bad word, but it's interesting to me that God uses this in his word when he originally writes it in the original language. It's not a negative word. It's a positive word. It, it describes a good desire. This is talking about creation and the Garden of Eden when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he lays them there and he says, look, this is for you. I, I created this as a gift for you to be desirable, for you to like. Here's the trees here's the fruit here is eden on earth that you can live at and that's all good gifts and so what this tells me is that all desires all all commods all all covet all coveting is not necessarily evil all desire is not necessarily evil but we see it again one chapter later in genesis 3 6 talking about the story you'll be familiar with this and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired, that's that word kamad, to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now, now this word, this word for desire, which was once used for something good, for the good gifts of God that were to be desired, is now being used for an evil desire, a desire to be made wise, a desire to be prideful. And I find it really interesting that we see that this word can describe good desires or it can describe bad desires. It describes both of them. And, and what it tells me, and I said all of that to say this, is our desires are not the problem. The, the problem that this commandment gets to is what do we desire and why do we desire it? Our first take-home truth, if you're taking notes in your bulletin there, is, is God created desire in us and both cares about and governs what we should desire. See, not all desires are bad. As a matter of fact, God created desires within us. He, he made us in a way that we desire certain things. About every four to five hours, my body starts to desire food. It tells me that you're hungry, Brian. It's time to eat pizza because that's what I eat most of the time. It's time to eat something. God put that within me so that I would know, my body would tell me when I need to eat. My body desires things and that's a, that's a good desire. But, but when we let that desire go unchecked, when, when we kind of let it take over, when we use that in an unhealthy way, that desire becomes unhealthy for us physically. It's the same thing. We talked about sexual desire a couple weeks ago when we talked about adultery. And we saw in that, that that that's a good thing, something that God created within us. But when it goes unchecked or it's misused, it becomes unhealthy for us spiritually. See, desire is not our problem. It's misusing our desires. 
And as a matter of fact, I would go ahead and argue that most, maybe not all, but most sins are just desires that, that we've misused in some way. Something that God put in us that we should want, and yet we've used them in a way that he does not want us to use. And in Exodus 20, it gives us a list of those desires that become spiritually unhealthy. It says don't covet, and number one, it says don't covet your neighbor's house. And, and wanting a house, wanting a place to live is not an evil thing. As a matter of fact, I would argue it's a necessity. It's one of the things we need to live is shelter, a place that is a home for us. And so coveting or wanting a house, desiring a house is not necessarily evil. It's which house we want. It's when we desire our neighbor's house. When we're walking down the road and we look at the house and go, man, Look at that house. I bet you they got five bedrooms. It's bigger than my house. It has a better yard than my house. They have better landscaping. That's when God says that that's not a good desire. It's not about wanting a place to live or wanting a house. It's, it's about wanting your neighbor's house. It's about being pulled into materialism. Secondly, it says don't covet, don't desire your neighbor's wife. And, and to desire a wife is not a bad thing as long as it's your wife or your husband for you ladies. That's not a bad thing to want. It has this connotation of lust within it. It's when we start to desire someone who is not our spouse that it becomes spiritually unhealthy. And then it talks about servants. And there's nothing wrong with hiring people. There's nothing wrong with having people who take care of your yard or work for you if you own a business. There's nothing wrong about that. It's when you look at your neighbor and say, look at how many people they have working for them. Look at their social status. That's, that's when it becomes unhealthy for us. It continues on uh, talking about livestock, the donkey and the ox being the working animals. This would be kind of the same thing today as desiring our neighbor's job or their position and their place. These things become spiritually unhealthy. And as I was looking at this list and I was trying to figure out why did God say specifically these things, I realized that this list really only deals with three things. Three things that God says, be careful of desiring them. And this list really comes down to a house, materialism, money, somebody else's wife, which is lust and that's sex. And then servants and people's means of, of making a living, that's, that's power or position. Really what God says here is be careful of desiring money, sex, and power. And how many people in the world fall into the trap of desiring those things? God says there's a warning here. He says you're going to look and see things and they're going to appear good to you, but, but don't want them. As a matter of fact, he says it's a trap. He says, run away from this. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. That's the same thing as a trap. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted, there's that word, coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So this is what that verse basically lays out to put it in a little bit shorter is it says that your desires are a trap and this trap leads you to destruction, perdition, which is hell and sorrow. Very simply what the scripture says is a desire for money, sex and power gets you death, sorrow and hurt. And it says this is a trap to avoid. Now you think about a trap. Traps are, traps are usually set for a certain purpose. They're set to catch something. And the way you want to trap something, if you were to want to trap an animal, is you don't just put a trap out in the middle of the woods and hope an animal stumbles into it. What do you have to put in the trap? You have to put bait in the trap. You put bait in the trap, something that is desirable, something that that animal will walk by and go, I want that. And it will coax them to step into a place where you can trap them and capture them. And it's the same thing. And it's the same way humans are trapped as traps are set with bait. There's something out there. It looks good. And, and something within me says, I want that. 
I'm going to move to action to get that. And we think we want it up until the moment that it, that it grabs us, that it gets us. And God's warning us in this commandment is, is you don't want to go down that road. You don't want to go down the road of chasing money or sex or power. Because those are traps that they look good. They're baited with good looks and things that you might want, but they'll catch you. I, I kind of, I don't watch the news very much, but I don't think that you can turn the news on very often without hearing a story of somebody who was caught in one of those three tra- traps. Without hearing the story of someone who chased money so much they were caught in the trap of breaking laws or someone who, who, who got in trouble for having some kind of a sexual addiction or, or somebody who pulls a power grab and it turns them criminal and you see that, that these people are now being punished because they were caught in a trap of chasing things. Chasing things that were unhealthy. And so basically, I think that the scripture presents us with a choice because we have good desires and we have bad desires. The Bible says there are some things to desire and some things not to desire. The question is, is what do we desire? What do we choose to desire? Do we ultimately chase those things that are those traps? Or do we ultimately try to follow and look for something better? And what is something better than those things? What is offered to us that is better than worldly possessions with power and money? What, what is offered to us that we could desire more? And the answer is, is God. And the truth is, is it's not God just because, just because there is a God. It's because you and I were created, Adam and Eve were created to desire God. That's our next take on truth, is we were designed to desire God. And I have to ask, why do we desire God? What is it about God that it should be desirable to us? Like, like I understand, like if I want money, it's easy for me to express why money is desirable because if I get money, I can buy things. I can buy things that make me happy, that make me have fun, at least for a short period of time. I understand desiring sex. That's, that's part of, of the human makeup. I understand describing or desiring power in all honesty. Power gives us access to the first two. But, but why is God better than those things? Because it's hard to quantify why why we, why we desire God? I think the answer is found well, probably many places in Scripture, but what came to my mind this week was, was Psalm 40. And, and Psalm 40 is written by David. And you look at David, and David had a lot. You, you think David had power? He was a king. David had position. He had the ability to rule over a country. David had money. He, he had a palace to live in. But we also see in David that David fell into that trap of sex with the story of Bathsheba. And David writes these words about his desire after falling into a trap. He says, first off in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now we're gonna stop there. I think, I think there's many sermons could be preached over that, that verse right there, that, actually half of a verse, to, to wait patiently on the Lord. And what that tells me is that, that David took a time in his life where metaphorically he sat down and said, no, I'm not chasing anything else. I'm waiting on God. I'm waiting till I can get him because I desire him more than the other things around me. So he wanted to wait for God because he desired him. But why? Why would you wait for God? What for? And then David answers us, continuing on in the verse. He says, And he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And so David describes himself 
David describes how he, he saw himself in the past. He says, I was in a pit. I was in a place that I couldn't escape. And in this pit, I decided that I was going to call out to God, that I desired him, that he would rescue me. And if you look at this, anybody who read this when it was originally written would have known that this was uh, heavy symbolism for pottery. It talks about the pit and, and the miry clay. And at this time, clay was mined in a pit. And these pits would be deep and they'd be dark and they would be wet. And when David talks about a pit, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a clay mining pit. Have you ever been, you ever found yourself in a pit? Not physically, but maybe, maybe emotionally. Maybe spiritually, you just, like, I just can't get out of this. See, those clay pits would have had very slick sides. There would have been no climbing out of it. Only with help or the proper equipment could you get out of the pit. And David says, I was, I was in a spiritual pit. I was in a, in a dark place. He says, but I cried out to God and he rescued me. And that's what David desired, is he desired a rescuer. And I love this, is, is David doesn't skip a beat. He says, I cried out to God and he came running. I was in a bad place, a dark place, a place of, of sorrow. And when I cried out to God, here he came, he came running for me and he found me in my pit and he rescued me. He goes on to say that he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. I've got a picture coming up here. When, when you make pottery and you go down into that pit and you kick clay and you pack it into a lump like this and you take this and you set it on a spinning rock. You guys have probably seen this where it spins and, and the first thing that, that, per, that potter will do is they take that thing, they pack it and then they throw it down on the rock. And that part that touches the stone, guess what that's called as you make a potter a vessel? That's, that's called the foot. David says, he set my foot upon a rock. Next picture, RB. And then from that moment, they begin to spin it. And, and that little piece of rough clay, the potter takes his hands and he begins to uh, um, strategically apply pressure in certain places. And as that, as that pot grows, he knows just exactly where to, where to push on it, where to pull on it, how to shape it. Very gently yet very firmly begin to shape that pot. And as David uses this imagery here, this is, this is what he's saying about being set on a rock and establishing my goings. As, as God pulled me out of the pit, I was a rough, lumpy piece of clay. I was worth nothing. And, and God set me up on a rock and then his hands came on me and, and he began to, to push and he began to shape. He, he began to change me and he began to make me something useful. And when David talks about desiring God, this is what he desires. He desires not just, not just to be around God, but for God to change him. And by the way, this is, this is the gospel. This is what Christianity is about. Christianity, you may have been told, is about figuring out a way to get into heaven. That's not true. That's wrong. Because within Christianity, not only does God justify us and save us, and not only is there heaven in the future, there's a middle part in between that. From the moment we become a Christian, God sets us on a rock and, and very gently he puts his hands around us and he begins, to, he begins to change us and he begins to shape us in different ways to make something special out of us. RB, you can pull that down. I had an uncle named Johnny and uh, you may have heard me tell a little bit about him before. Johnny was a drug addict. Um, and he got to a place in his life where he was in a pit. He was in an inescapable dark place. And he got to a place within his life where he made the decision he was going to take his own life. And for an entire day, he tried to build up the confidence to take up his life. He stayed in an apartment by himself trying to end it that day. And he finally cried out to this guy, to a God he didn't believe in and a God he didn't know. He goes, look, I need some help if you're going to do something here because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to end this. 
And later that afternoon, a family member come and knocked on his door and sat down in his living room and shared the gospel with him. A family member said, Johnny, sin is a trap that puts you in a pit and you can't escape it, but if you cry out to God, God will come rescue you. He loves you enough and he'll hear your cries. And Johnny was so mad at that. He said, I, I'm not, I don't want none of this church stuff. I don't need none of your God. I'm trying to figure out some things in my life. And he rejected the family member and sent them out of the house. But something in him kept saying, you asked for help and I sent it. So a few days later, Johnny, Johnny gave his life to Christ and it checked, changed him radically. And for the next 25 years of his life, God put his hands on him and he began to shape him and he began to change him. He began to make him a whole different creation. He went from being a drug addict who was thinking about taking his own life to being a man whose whole life revolved around pouring Christ into those around him. At his job sites, he was a construction worker. At his job sites, he was a, uh, known as grandpa. And these young men who were away from home, who were living rough lifestyles, they knew that when things got bad, they could go talk to Johnny because Johnny seemed to know God. And, and Johnny would, would pray for them and he would counsel them. And that was his entire life as he was slowly shaped into a person that poured into others, poured Christ into others. Now think if Johnny was here today, he passed away a couple years ago. If he was here today, he would tell you, I tried it one way. I tried the I want it way, but I found something better. I found something that, that I like more. I found something more desirable than everything this world has to give me. My favorite story changed my life, changes the way I view God about Johnny. He was a young Christian and um, he bought a, a Camaro. And, and this was back in the days when Camaros were cool, right? I was like, I was at that age where I was fixing and driving in the back of my head. I was like, Uncle Johnny likes me. When I turn 16, maybe he'll give me the Camaro, right? And he was driving this thing and, and man, Uncle Johnny was cool. He had like that 80s, like long hairstyle. He had sunglasses and like this little mischievous skin and he'd be cruising around in a Camaro. I thought my Uncle Johnny is the coolest man in the world with this Camaro. And the next time I saw him, he's driving this old beat up Dodge truck. I was like, Johnny, where's, where's the Camaro, man? You look like the bandit. What, why are you in this old beat up truck and this is what he said to me this is what he said to me about desiring that car he said Brian I found myself driving around and I was thinking about how good I looked and how many people were looking at me he said how's God getting glory out of that I had to get rid of the car because God wasn't glorified what Johnny said is I found something better I found something more desirable than what this world has to offer me I found God he became the most generous person I think I've ever met. And we're faced with two questions. I think all of us are faced with two questions. Is do I desire what I can make myself with the I wants of this world, with money, sex, and power? Or do I desire what God can make out of me? And if you're asking that question of yourself and you find yourself that saying, well, a lot of times I look at the world and I want to be like it. I look at the world and, and I want what the world has and you're struggling. I just want you to know you're not alone. And you're not even a bad Christian. I think a lot of us would be like, oh, you're not perfect. You're probably not doing very good. That's not it. The Bible promises us that we'll struggle with this. In Galatians 5, it talks about the spirit warring against the flesh. What that means is that there's part of me that wants God to shape me. There's part of me that wants God to change me. There's part of me that wants to desire God. But there's also another part of me that fights against that. There's a part of me that's that, that rough lump of that clay that, that every time God tries to apply a little pressure, I fight back against it. There's part of me that wants this world. And we're promised, we're promised that. We're promised that that will be our lives. 
and we struggle with this even though most of us know better. Most of us know God is to be desired more than the things of this world. Most of us know that this world won't last forever. Most of us know that big houses and fancy cars and power and positions, they only last up until the point they put us in the ground. But we still struggle with it. We still struggle with desiring God the way that we should. In 1972, some psychologists decided to study something called delayed gratification. They began to do something called the marshmallow experiment. And and the marshmallow experiment is uh, basically they wanted to see which kids could put off happiness for a bigger reward. Which kids could could kind of die to themselves in the present in order to get something more. And then they wanted to assess how does this affect them on their lives. And I'll spare you all the details, but here, here's, here's the basics of how the experiment went. They took a young kid and they put them in a room in a chair and they put a marshmallow in front of them. And they gave them two rules. Number one, you stay in that chair until I come back. Now, how they got the kids to stay in the chairs, I don't know. I haven't figured that one out yet. But they said, you stay in that chair till I come back. Number two, you can eat that marshmallow anytime that you want to. It's yours. You can have it. But if you cannot eat it until I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow and then you can have two. Can you wait? Can you put off the good thing right now to have something better in the future? And I'll just tell y'all that watching these kids try to go through this is hilarious because you see that internal struggle with them. As a matter of fact, I've got a short video showing you the struggle. Let's watch it. give you another one if you wait or you can eat it now when I come back I'll give you another one so then you'll have two but stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back okay all right
<laughs> Aren't kids the cutest things? Like, I, I love watching those kids because you can see that internal struggle. Like, like, they'll pick it up and they'll look at it and they'll be thinking about eating it and then they're like, ah, I can wait a little longer. And, and I love the one kid who's like, looks around and he's like, licks it, you know, <laughs> like, like nobody will ever know. And as adults, we watch that and it's like, two marshmallows, man. Wait the 10 or 15 minutes until they come back. Don't, don't, don't give up what you're fixing to get for what's right in front of you. But I got news for you. That's, that's you and me, man. We, we look at this world and we look at the options we have between what's in front of us and something better if we can wait patiently. And, and we're just like those kids. We're like, we can't take our eyes off of it. Like, I want it so bad. I might die if I don't eat that marshmallow. I might die if I don't get those materialistic things. And, and some of us are like those kids that, that like, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm just gonna taste it for a second. Maybe they'll never know. Some of you are like that one little girl who's before even like the person gets out, she's already got the marshmallow in her mouth. That's some of us. But, but that kind of describes us in the way that we view this with God, this internal battle that we have. We have the lesser reward of the present, but if, if we will have the patience, there's a larger reward of having God. And I guess the question I want to ask us today is, which one are you and which one am I? Are we the kids who sit there and we stare at the marshmallow and go, I can, I can, I can wait this out. I would rather have the bigger reward. Are we the kid who takes a nibble, takes a nibble, takes a nibble up until the point that, that we eat the whole thing? See, what I believe about our desires is that our actions reveal our desires. And this is what we've been studying with, the, with this entire Ten Commandments series is, is that what our eyes see, our heart wants, and our actions will follow. And so many of the commandments are actually focused on our heart, not the actions. And this is why God saves it to the last. He gives us all these rules. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't kill. I am your first murder kill. I, I, am, I am your God. There is no second. He gives us all of these things. And at the end of it, he says, be careful what you desire. Be careful with what you allow yourself to want in this world. And it's because God knows, God knows that eventually our desires will lead us to action. And we see this biblically. We see this with David, the, the guy who wrote Psalm 40. We see that, that he allowed himself, his eyes saw a woman. He wanted her even though she was married to somewhere else. And eventually, because of his desire, he, he moved into action and he took her. Ended up killing her husband so that he could have her. We see this with, in Judges 21 with another king named Ahab. This is Ahab and Jezebel. And, and Je, uh, he wants this garden. And the guy won't sell it to him. So he and his wife devise a way to kill, to murder, in order to, to have this thing. And if you notice with these stories, that these are topics that are dealing with, guess what, adultery and murder and theft. The things that we've been studying. And it all comes down to the desire that started it. But the opposite is true too. When, when you desire more than the present, when you desire more than the world, the opposite is very true about desiring God moving us to actions. See, there was a man in the Bible named Matthew. Matthew had the world. He had money. He had power. He worked for the Roman government. He, he was the richest person in town. But one day a carpenter walks by. Didn't have a place to live. This carpenter once said, I don't even have a pillow. And he turns around and he looks at Matthew and he says, do you desire me? Will you follow me? 
And Matthew locked up his booth and took off following him because he desired Jesus Christ more than he desired the riches or the money or the wealth. I love the early church, the early church church in Acts. I don't know what started this, but they were so on fire for God. They desired God so deeply. They said, you know what? We're going to sell everything. I don't mean like, oh, we're going to give a little extra. These people are out there selling their farms and their houses and they're giving the money to the church. And so let's see what God can do with it because we desire him more. We desire him more than what we have. We desire him more than possessions. We desire him more than money and power. No matter what it is, whatever your desire is, if it's a good desire or a bad desire, it will move you to actions. Our next take home truth is our actions reveal our deepest desires. So if I was to ask you, what, what do you desire? What is your deepest desire? You, you might come up with a list of things. Well, this is what I want. And you could probably make a, a pretty good list of scriptural things. Well, I, I want to be closer to God. I want to serve more. I want to see more salvations. But, but then I would ask you this question because your desires, uh, your true desires move you to action. I would ask you this question now is, is what moves you to action? If you want to know what your desires are, the question is, is what moves you to action? Because that tells what your actual desires are. You desire to see more people saved, somebody you love saved. Well, are you being moved to action about it or are you just saying it? Are you looking for opportunities to invite them to church, opportunities to share the gospel with them? Or are we just saying, I desire this? If we desire to move it to action. Are you looking to see change in your life? I want to get closer to God. I want to grow in this. Well, if that's true, where's, where's your commitment? If that's your desire, it will move you to action. It, it will cause you to change. And many of us today, many of us today are sitting here going, well, Brian, I'm at church. It's Sunday morning. I obviously desire God because I'm here that's my action, move my desires. I think this is the test of what we desire. What if I went into your life Monday through Saturday and I found someone close to you and I said, hey, what does, what does so-and-so desire? Based on their actions, based on what you see to them day to day, well, what do they want? What's the biggest thing they want in their life? How many of them would say, oh, they want a promotion. I see them out here working every day. They're trying to get a better job. How, how many of them would say, oh, they, they, they want a raise. They're working hard for more money. How, how many of us could say that, that the people in our lives would look at us and say, oh, their greatest desire? Something about God. I, I don't understand it, but they want to serve God and they want to they love God. And, and I'll be honest with y'all. Man, I fell at this Sunday through Sunday. It's not even Monday through Saturday because our actions say we want everything the world has to offer, not not God. And so I guess the question here is, is if we're failing at this, how do we change our desires? Because it's not like I can just decide what I want right now. What I decided at this moment, I decided I'm no longer going to want pizza. I'm going to want vegetables. Ugh. Like we can't do that because we desire what we desire. So how do we desire God more? And it points you back to Psalm 40 again in David. And you look at, at what David concentrated on. Psalm 40 goes on to this, this list of praise and how much he loves God. But look at what he concentrated on first. He concentrated not on what he desired. He concentrated on God's desire for him. The fact that he called out to God and that God would come and save him. Our last take home truth is God's greatest desire is your heart. And that may seem wrong because in church, and I just did it, sometimes we talk about our actions. What are we doing or not doing? But Jesus quoted Hosea 6.6 6, talking about this from the mouth of God. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What Jesus tells us here is what he desires. He desires hearts that he can put his hands around and begin to shape. 
He doesn't desire our actions. He doesn't desire us to be at church in the mornings if it's not coming from a heart that he is shaping. And this is the, the, the end of the Ten Commandments. This is the crux of all of them. All of the Ten Commandments, what does it come down to? Everything we've talked about, every commandment we go into and we dig into and it comes into is God's concerned about what's in our heart. God's concerned about what we're doing in our minds and in ourselves, not what we're doing physically. God wants our heart, and that's why this is the last one. See, God desires you, Brother Danny, if, if you can come up here. God desires you, and, and I can prove it. Because desire leads to action. And we can observe in the Bible the actions of our God. Is that when we were in the trap and in the pit of sin, that, that Jesus Christ wasn't content to just be like, hey, I'll throw you a rope. Jesus Christ came to our rescue in the form of a man and, and he put his life down on a cross so that he could pull you out of that pit so that he could save you from that trap. See, if desire dictates action, then his action tells us that what he desires is us. And at the end of this, as we've talked about nothing but God wanting our heart, I don't want us to leave here after another Sunday of saying, I'll take care of it next Sunday. What's God asking from your heart? Maybe he's asking you for the first time to put your faith in him and go all in and say, God, I give you my heart. I choose to serve you more than the things of this world. Or maybe he's asking us as Christians to assess how much are we really letting him shape him and how much are we fighting back? Either way, don't leave here again like you have Sunday after Sunday saying, ah, it'll be okay. This is our response time. This altar is open for prayer. If you want to come up here and talk with me, I'd love to talk with you and, and tell you what it means to be a follower of Christ or, or to pray with you. But Leave here different today than you came in.